So um, coming out of Easter, we're going to spend the next three weeks uh, in Mark chapter 2. Uh, and we're going to be looking at three questions that Jesus essentially provokes. Um, and the one this morning that we're looking at is this question of who can forgive sins but God? Who can forgive sins but God? Jesus spent the first 30 years of his life really in obscurity as a carpenter in, in Nazareth. But around the age of 30, Jesus began his itinerant teaching and healing ministry. Mark chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that, that after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is, has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And so on the heels of John the Baptist, Jesus begins his ministry and he begins by proclaiming this good news message that the kingdom had arrived. As he launched his ministry, Jesus taught and he also began to heal and to cast out demons. And in response to Jesus' ministry, the crowds began to say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And Jesus quickly began to grow in popularity. One morning, Jesus went away to pray and his disciples came searching for him. And they said to him, teacher, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus, his response was to say back to them, then let's go to the next village so that I can preach there too, because that's why I've come. And so Mark summarizes that Jesus went to all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is what Jesus was doing when he returned back to his home base of Capernaum. And by the time he comes back to Capernaum, Jesus has gained quite a bit of notoriety. Word had gotten out about Jesus. There was a, a, a growing murmur about this, this new teacher, this new rabbi who, who taught differently and who had the power to like cast out demons and, and perform miracles. And so when Jesus gets back to Capernaum, uh, he returns, it says, to the house in the Greek. Most likely this is referring to Peter's house, which was sort of a home base for Jesus. And so Jesus is likely at Peter's house and, and people begin to flock there in hopes of seeing Jesus. And so the, the house probably had room for about 75 people to pack inside of it. It would have been a little house, like a large living room area. And, and, and soon enough, there were so many people that had come to Peter's house that they were literally piling up outside. Like they were so packed in. This is a fire marshal's nightmare, right? They're, they're so packed in this house that people are standing in the threshold. They're probably, if there was a window, they're peeking through the window. People are lining up outside of the house to get a glimpse of Jesus, to maybe be within earshot of what he was saying. And, and there would have been various reasons why people showed up to see Jesus. Some were maybe skeptical of Jesus. We actually are going to find that to be the case with some of these religious leaders. They're, they're skeptical of Jesus, and so maybe they're there to try to denounce him, to catch him in, 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 a, in a, a, you know, saying something that's not true or that disagrees with their beliefs. So there were some who were skeptical. There were some who were there out of intrigue 
They had maybe heard something. They, they had a friend who told them that they were there when Jesus performed a miracle, that they were there when Jesus cast out a demon, or they were there when Jesus was teaching. And it, it was unlike any other teaching they had ever heard. And so they were intrigued. And so they show up out of intrigue to see for themselves. Some were new disciples of Jesus. Jesus had recently called some to be his disciples, to, to follow him as a rabbi and to learn from his way of, of life. But everyone wanted to see Jesus for themselves. They wanted to see what he was about. And here's the truth. That same reality has been going on for 2,000 years. There are all kinds of opinions about Jesus. Some see him as a great teacher who, who taught a code of ethics that were amazing. Others see Jesus as a miracle worker or an example worthy of, of being emulated and followed. Muslims acknowledge Jesus as a prophet. Hindus acknowledge him as an incarnation of a deity, an avatar. Buddhists see him as an enlightened one. Christians, we believe that he's the son of God. But whatever you do with Jesus, you have to admit that he's changed history. No respected historian or scholar today denies Jesus' existence. Everybody accepts that he was a real person in history and that he turned history upside down. Over 2 billion people in the world today identify themselves under the banner Christian. Jesus is an unavoidable reality. And so as we get going this morning, I just want to say to those of you who have perhaps been living your lives trying to avoid Jesus, that perhaps it's time to draw near and to explore for yourself. That maybe you should be like this crowd at Peter's house who gathered to see what all the hubbub was about. Here in this narrative, we, we find this group of people packed into the house to get a look for themselves. And, and by the way, this is how we get a look, right? By opening up the scriptures and by reading about Jesus in the gospels. If you want to investigate Jesus, if you're unsure what to think about him, if you don't know what to think, you just need a copy of the Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we have several copies in the back. We would love for you to just grab a copy and walk out. You're not stealing from us. That's our gift to you. Um, so if you need a Bible, you grab one in the back. But this is how we encounter Jesus, is by opening up the Scriptures, by reading about him in the Gospels. And so what we find in Mark's Gospel is that people came to Jesus in Peter's house, and Mark tells us that he was speaking the word to them, that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So I want you, I want you to try to imagine it with me. I want you to try to imagine this, this small little house. I want you to try to imagine all of the people being packed in there. It's something in between like what we're doing this morning and what we do in what we call city groups, which are small groups that meet in homes. Somewhere in between those two, there's about 75 people here and Jesus is, is, is preaching and teaching when suddenly in the middle of the message, they begin to hear something on the roof. And then they begin to notice like debris and dust begin to fall down from, from the ceiling until finally like a light beam breaks through, right? And then, and then all of a sudden they saw a hand appear through the hole. And then another set of hands. And then two more sets of hands, all furiously pulling away the thatch and the mud that formed the roof. In Mark's language, they were unroofing the roof. Until finally there is this large, gaping hole 
in Peter's ceiling. You wonder what he was thinking at this moment, right? Do we know that sometimes being a disciple of Jesus means your roof might get damaged? It might mean 75 people packed into your house. Following Jesus will necessarily lead us to kingdom inconveniences. I wonder if you're willing to be inconvenienced by Jesus so that he can do ministry through your life. How willing are you to inconvenience yourself for someone to get to Jesus? That's what we see with these four men. They went to drastic measures to get their friend to Jesus. They literally ripped a hole in someone else's roof. It wasn't even their own roof. It was someone else's roof. I mean, you had to know that they're going to pay restitution on this, right? They're going, we're going to do this, but we're going to be rebuilding a roof next week, right? And they do it so that they could get their friend close enough to Jesus' healing touch. And somewhere along the way of this happening, Jesus likely stopped his sermon because he perceives the intentions of these four guys and their friend. It's, it's speculation, but I wonder what Jesus' facial expression was in this moment. Whatever it was, I, I don't think it was an expression of being perturbed. I bet he had a wry smile on his face. Maybe he, maybe he winked at one of those guys peeking through the hole. Jesus knew what they were after. Without any words, their intentions are crystal clear. Mark adds the note here that Jesus perceived their faith. Their faith, all of their faith, the, the four friends' faith, but, but likely also the paralytic himself. They, they come as a group, these four friends, with their friend who's paralyzed, they come to Jesus believing that he can perform a miracle, that he could make this man walk. And without saying anything, at least not recorded in the text, Jesus identifies exactly what they're after. He knows what their hope is, which is why verse five is so peculiar. Verse five tells us that seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. The friends are probably looking at each other going, I mean, thanks, Jesus, but that's not why we came, right? Paralyzed guy's going, I want new legs. Why did Jesus say this? There was a common belief in the first century that those who suffered from disease or ailment did so because of some sin in their life or in their family history. And it is sometimes true that suffering comes as a result of the consequences of sin. But often that is not the case. Jesus, on another occasion, made it very clear that suffering should not be attributed directly to sin. With this man, we don't know what his backstory is. Mark doesn't give it to us. But it's not the point. When, when, when Jesus looks at this man and he offers him forgiveness, it's, it's not because he's implying that he's paralyzed because of his sin. No, Jesus offers this man forgiveness because this man's greatest need was not to walk again. 
It was to walk with God. This man's greatest need was to be reconciled to the Heavenly Father. It was to have his sins forgiven. Pastor Tim Keller explains, Jesus is saying, by coming to me and asking only for your body to be healed, you're not going deep enough. If someone is paralyzed, naturally, with every fiber of their being, they desire to walk again. And maybe they say to themselves, if I could just walk again, then I'd truly be happy. Then I'd truly be fulfilled. Isn't this how we tend to think? If only I had blank, then my life would be fulfilled. Then I could truly be happy. But don't you know that eventually the the elation of walking again would fade? That at some point down the line, it wouldn't be enough. That another desire or need would arise. That at some point, you're going to find yourself wishing for something else. In, in, In lesser ways, we do this all the time. Right, we do it with technology. If only I could have the newest MacBook. If only I could have the newest iPhone. Then I'd be happy. And then the luster wears off and a new version comes out and it's no longer satisfying. We do this with relationships. We, we do this with jobs. My favorite version of this is the Joanna Gaines version of this. Fixer Upper, right? Have you ever watched Fixer Upper? It, it's literally salvation by home renovation. If only I could find the right house, then all my dreams will come true and we'll live happily ever after. When we first get something, it feels amazing. It feels satisfying. But then the luster wears off and we become discontent. Keller says, almost always, when we first go to Jesus saying, this is my deepest wish, his response is that we need to go a lot deeper than that. We need Jesus to do more than grant our wishes. We need a God who can do more than meet our therapeutic needs and our physical desires. If you're only coming to Jesus asking for a new job or a spouse or physical healing, it's not that any of those things are evil. It's just that they're not your greatest need. And even if he answered that prayer and gave you what you asked for, you'd still eventually find yourself with a sense of incompleteness and a deep need still unanswered because you were made for God. And as St. Augustine said, your heart will, will remain restless until it rests in him. What we need most is God himself. What we need is our sins forgiven. And that's what Jesus is offering this paralyzed man. Now it's been pointed out that only one who's been sinned against can offer the guilty party forgiveness. One pastor imagines three men talking, Tom, Harry, and John. And suddenly Tom punches John in the nose. And then Harry walks up to Tom and says, Tom, I forgive you for punching John. What do you think John would say? Uh, I don't think so, right? That's not how this works. 
you can't forgive something you didn't do. He didn't punch you, he punched me. Well, when these religious leaders hear Jesus say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, they have a similar reaction. They begin to ask the question. Here's the question that Jesus provokes. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In other words, the paralyzed man punched God and Jesus came along and said, it's okay, I forgive you. See, all sin, the Pharisees get this right, all sin is ultimately against God. I want you to think back to to King David with me. We just finished that series looking at the life of King David. King David, after committing adultery and murder, prays in Psalm 51 against you, he's talking to God, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And we read that and we go, there's a sense in which David sinned against literally everyone, right? He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his own family. He abdicated his responsibilities as a king and leader of the nation. He sinned against the entire nation of Israel. What do you mean you sinned against God and God alone? All of David's failures were fundamentally a failure to honor God and to remember that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Right? When we violate someone else, when we sin against someone else, we abuse someone who's been made in the image of God. When, when we misuse creation, we dishonor and disrespect the creator. All sin is a failure of worship and a failure of honor unto God. And see, when the Bible talks about sin, it's not just talking explicitly about the bad things that we do. It's also talking about the way that we live our lives without reference to God. It's the way that we take our God-given faculties and we use them to serve ourselves. Living as if something other than God is most important. And so all sin is ultimately against God. It's a violation against God, and we're all guilty. And the result is that there's enmity between us and God, that there's this chasm created by our sins that needs to be bridged. There's a forgiveness that needs to happen. We need to be absolved of our selfishness and our waywardness so that we can know God as Father and live in relationship with him. We need forgiveness. Sometimes it's said that Jesus never explicitly claimed to be the son of God in the scriptures. But don't you see that that's exactly what is happening here? Jesus is here claiming to have the authority, the right, the ability to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says to this guy, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus also, in this same passage, calls himself the Son of Man. It was Jesus' favorite self-designation. It was his favorite title for himself. But don't get it twisted. The title Son of Man is not this humble title of association with our humanity. Jesus certainly was a human being. 
But when he uses this title, Son of Man, it's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where the prophet Daniel looks forward and has a vision of one like a son of man who is given dominion and an eternal kingdom and is worshipped and served by all peoples. Jesus, right here, in no uncertain terms, is telling everyone that he is divine. And the religious leaders are miffed. Because in their minds, Jesus is blaspheming, making himself out to be God, and they're right. And Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, perceiving what's going on in their hearts, asks a question. Which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Now here's what's interesting. This question has puzzled interpreters for 2,000 years. Like we, when you begin to think about this, you kind of find yourself going, well, which is easier? Because on the one hand, the forgiveness of sins is not something that is visually seen. And so it's easy to say, your sins are forgiven. Anybody can do that. How can you tell? It's a lot harder to say to someone, rise, take up your mat and walk because the empirical evidence is right in front of you. Either he gets up or he doesn't. Right? There's, you, can, you can identify that. You can understand that. You can see that. And so Jesus seems to be saying, if I can do the thing that can be empirically verified, then that should prove my identity and my ability to do the other. And so he says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. And immediately he got up, took the mat and went out in front of everyone. Immediately. Like Jesus speaks and it happens. For Jesus to speak something is for Jesus to do something. Jesus never speaks a word and it doesn't come to pass. There is power in his words. And it says, when the crowds saw it, they were astounded and said, we've never seen anything like this before. What kind of man has authority like this? So back to the question, which is easier? Jesus speaks and a lame man walks. He says it and it happens. Jesus speaks and declares, your sins are forgiven. And it happens. It's true. He's forgiven. But here's the question. How? How will he be forgiven? Another reason why the religious leaders are so upset with Jesus is not only because Jesus made himself out to be God, but also because he offers this man immediate forgiveness outside of the system of the temple and the altar. The Jewish people had a system for forgiveness. You had to go to the priest. You had to bring an animal. They had to slaughter it. They had to sprinkle the blood. There was an atonement process. Here, Jesus just goes, your sins are forgiven. To them, this seems like really cheap grace. 
But the reality is that when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, he knew exactly what it would cost. These were not easy words. These were weighty words. These were expensive words. To say, rise, take up your mat, and walk requires great power. It it requires authority over creation. But to say, your sins are forgiven, meant that Jesus was pledging his life for this paralyzed man. To forgive him, Jesus himself would have to atone for this man's sins. Jesus is signaling already in Mark chapter 2 that he is headed for a cross. That he will die for the sins of the world. That he will offer up his life as a ransom for others. He is the divine son of man who has all authority. And he is the divine son of man who lays down his life. Who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. The crowd's response to Jesus is appropriate. It says they glorified God. They worshiped. Jesus is inviting us to worship this morning. C.S. Lewis once quipped, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, referring to Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, you must make the choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a really great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Here in this moment, in this episode, Jesus is inviting us to believe in him as the Lord of all. He's revealing himself as God to us, not simply a teacher, not a faith healer, but as one who has the authority to forgive your sins because he died on a cross to pay the penalty for them and he rose from the grave and conquered death. Jesus is offering himself to us this morning as the one who can meet our deepest needs and satisfy us way down deep. But as we close here, let's also not miss the fact that Jesus does end up healing this man's legs. Jesus came not only to forgive our sins, but also to reverse the curse, to undo all of the brokenness that has been caused by sin. And every time Jesus performs a miracle in the Gospels, it's like a little glimpse into the kingdom that is coming. It's a little foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. It's like a little hors d'oeuvre. Because there is a day coming when all of the ill effects of sin will be no more. Now it is true that sometimes our pain is relieved only on the other side of death. But sometimes Jesus still speaks a word of healing in the here and now. We can bring our brokenness to Christ and ask him to mend it. 
And so the takeaway from this story is not only come to Jesus for forgiveness. Yes, come for that as the entree. But stay for the dessert. Jesus still responds to faith. He still answers prayer. Isn't that what we find here in this story? Four friends and a paralytic man come to Jesus. He sees their faith and he heals him. It was an imperfect faith. They still didn't even have full clarity on who Jesus was, but they came. Friends, Jesus is so gracious and kind. If you come to him with imperfect faith, if you come to him with weak faith, he blesses that. Come to him. Come to him. Jesus taught that we should ask and seek and knock, that we should persist in prayer, that we should believe in his power, that we should trust in his heart. If he died for you, if he died for you, it cannot be that he doesn't love you. If he's done the greatest, most sacrificial act of all, then we can trust him for lesser things, right? And if he's done the harder thing, which is to forgive sins, then he can certainly heal as well. He can certainly answer prayer. And because the heart of God is good, because Jesus is faithful, he will either give us what we ask for or what we would have asked for if we could see all things perfectly the way he sees. If we understood the way he understands how it all fits together into his perfect plan, then we would, we would align ourselves with that and go, that yes, that's perfect, that's right. But come to him. Peter tells us to cast all of our cares and anxieties upon him because he cares for us. Maybe this morning you need someone to help carry you to Jesus. Sometimes we need that, don't we? We need somebody to help us get to him. Listen, the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. Do you have friends like these guys in this story? I feel like we keep coming back to this theme of friendship. I don't know what the Lord's trying to teach us. But certainly this, that we need people in our lives that get us to Jesus, that point us to Jesus, that pray with us. Listen, one of the reasons why we are so adamant about city groups, I know, I, I'm not foolish enough to think that every single one of you is like, yes, city groups. I know that some of, some of you are like skeptical about this. Ah, I got to go to somebody's house and I got I to gotta open my, myself up to people and it's awkward and I don't like it. Listen, the reason why we are so emphatic about city groups is because we need people in our lives that are going to push us to Jesus. And we need to be that kind of person for someone else. These guys were determined to get their friend to Jesus. We need to be that kind of friend for somebody. Who are you bringing to the feet of Jesus in your prayers? Who are you bringing before the Lord and going, Lord, would you heal them? Starting with their greatest need, which is to know you. Would you open their heart and their life up to believe in you? Maybe you need to invite them into your literal home, around your literal table, and serve them a meal so that you can get them to Jesus. Maybe you need to invite them to a, a worship gathering 
like we're in this morning, to invite them into city group. But we're called to be like the friends in this story, to bring our friends to Jesus so that he can heal them. Let's pray. Jesus, I just pray this morning that we would not sell you short. You're certainly a teacher. You're certainly a miracle worker. Jesus, you're so much more than that. You are the son of God. And you want to meet our greatest need. You want to give us forgiveness. You want to reconcile us to the Father. You want us to have a relationship with the God who made us. Help us to believe in you as the one who made that possible, as the one who offers that relationship. But let us also believe in you as our healer. And so, Lord, I know that there are many needs in the house today. Let us not only believe in you for an afterlife, but let us believe in you for life right now. Let us trust in you for whatever it is that's in our life that we need you for. Help us to bring all things to you and to entrust them to you and to know that you're good, that we can trust your heart, that you're faithful. Lord, help us to be like these friends. Help us to live lives faithful to those that you've put in our life. Help us to point each other to Jesus, to carry each other to Jesus if necessary. Jesus, we need you. We thank you that you graciously give yourself to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.